is uh, finding their seat. I'll review the announcements. We have the church church luncheon on Sunday, so you can uh, bring something. Sign up sheet is in the back, some side. Just because they're serving brisket doesn't mean you bring either beans or potato salad. You know, one of the couple of the better. Uh, barbecue places in town have expanded their size. They may have 10 or 12 different, not the traditional beans, coleslaw, or potato salad. So just bring uh, bring whatever you like, and that will be good. Also, uh, Vacation Bible School starts June 13th through 15th. Pray for outreach efforts and that we can uh, get some more kids in here. We have, I think, what, 23 or 24? We lost two today. Okay, well, we continue to pray that the kids will show up, and then also pray for Camp Arete. And then one announcement from uh, the other night, we have uh, <clears throat> we have this copy for the church, so don't walk off with it, but I have a couple of more at home somewhere. This is the, uh, and you can order them, you can call up Friends of Israel and get their March-April 2016 edition. I meant to mention this the other night, but uh, the 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 issue in March, April was focused on the Holocaust. And there's quite a few articles related to it, and they're very, very well done. Um, Friends of Israel is a pro-Israel Christian evangelistic organization, and they have uh, very, very good material. And for years, they've had a column, and I think they're running um, sort of oldie goldies, on uh, Zvi Kalisher, and Zvi went to be with the Lord not long ago, and he gave a report every month on his evangelistic opportunities and conversations that he had in um, in Israel. It also has sections dealing with Israel in the news, analysis of current events, things like that. Uh, the current issue has three articles by Randy Price uh, dealing with archaeology, so it's very informative, very helpful. Uh, I encourage you to support that. They, their rental showers has been their uh, theologian in residence for the last, I think, 40 years. And uh, and the, the, he is, I'm not sure if he's being replaced or or exactly what, what but Mike Stallard, who's been the uh, president of the uh, graduate school at... Uh, at Baptist Bible Seminary in in Pennsylvania, solid dispensationalist. He's spoken at the Chaper Conference and in pre-trip several times, and he is now going to be, as of the as of yesterday, a full-time international director for uh, Friends of Israel, and also uh, taking, I think, some of those responsibilities for uh, rental showers. So he's a really solid, solid. They're solid dispensational ministry. Their Bible studies are good. And they have great information. So just uh, a word to the wise. Also a reminder about the 2016 uh, D- DBM trip uh, to Israel. If you have any questions about that, you can contact us. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, uh, the importance of which is that we are uh, orienting ourselves back to the grace of God and to fellowship, walking by the Spirit, walking in the truth, walking in the light, abiding in Christ. These are all various dynamic terms and commands that we find in Scripture, and they are uh, <clears throat> they indicate that we either do them or we do not do them. When we don't do them, that means we're under the control of the sin nature. We need to confess sin, and instantly we are forgiven of the sins we confess and cleansed of all other unrighteousness so that we can be restored to a right relationship with the Lord and walk with him. We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege that we have to be members of the body of Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In Christ, we have all things. In Christ, we have eternal security. In Christ, we have uh, the provision of everything necessary for life and godliness. Father, we thank you for all these many blessings. And Father, we have your word, and as our Lord prayed, we are sanctified or set apart or matured by means of your word. It is not through experience, it is not through um, music, it is not through other things that people focus on, it is by the study of your word, internalizing it, metabolizing it, assimilating it into our thinking and being transformed from the inside out. And the only way that can happen is if we dedicate ourselves to a true study and application of your word. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we face a uh, a topic, a doctrine that is often uh, misunderstood and often part of, of debate. And Father, help us to think our way through these things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Since we're in Texas, somebody just sent me a a photo that, that <clears throat> I wasn't sure if it was in Texas or not, but it's a great illustration of uh, carrying the law to its logical conclusion. This is a picture of what it means to have an open carry law. That'll take care of the bad guys. All right, we're in 1 Peter 1. We're moving forward. The last two or three lessons we focused on redemption and understanding what that, what that means. And so now we're back into the verse-by-verse flow of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. So what I want to do is pick up on the flow of the thinking so that we have our mindset back into the text itself. But tonight we're primarily going to do a a study of the doctrine of foreknowledge, one we've studied before, even in First Peter, related to First uh, Peter chapter 1. This was only last summer that we covered it, but it's one that bears repeating. It's interesting how many emails I get from different people, whether they are pastors or seminary students or students of the Word, but mostly those who are Bible college or seminary students write me and they say, I have not heard anybody that's so clear on understanding free grace and understanding these issues related to Calvinism and Arminianism. This is a great debate. And I remember when I first went to, up to visit Dallas Seminary, sitting down with uh, uh, Randy Price, who was just barely starting his first year, and he was telling me that how much I needed to study this issue because it was the 
hot debate topic on campus, and it was, and it continued to be that way for most of the time I was at seminary for four or five years. One of the seminary professors, a uh, uh, professor of Greek, also a professor of theology named uh, S. Lewis Johnson, who has since gone to be with the Lord and had been on faculty there for many years, had become convinced of, shall we say, that what they call the doctrines of grace and had become a five-point Calvinist, a superlapsarian five-point Calvinist. But he had the integrity, unlike a number of faculty members that have been on the faculty since, he had the integrity to admit that he was taking a position that while it was not technically against the doctrinal statement of the school, it was against the historic position and tradition of the school, and so he retired, uh, resigned from his position. And I say that because I know personally of at least a half a dozen faculty members who have been at Dallas Seminary, some of whom don't even didn't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, some of whom uh, had some very, very strange ideas. Most of them didn't last very long on the faculty, maybe a year or two. But there are those today that I know that... that would say that the, the that they don't quite believe the doctrinal statement to mean what uh, Dr. Chafer would have thought it meant, which indicates that they don't believe in authorial intent, uh, but they have their own interpretation, and so somehow they, because of that, they skate around it, and um, and it also shows an interesting bias that they have against <clears throat> against the truth and against integrity. Uh, this is a real problem that we have in our whole culture today is people who rationalize lies the truth. But this issue was, was uh, uh, just a battleground when I was a student. Whenever you'd sit down with another student, this always came up. I mean, it always came up. Everybody was talking about it, debating it, both sides of the issues, up and down, around. And uh, and really, that's one of the values of having a seminary education where you go to seminary, not where you sit in your office at home online, where you're not interacting with people who have different views. And uh, the, the values, it sharpens your thinking. It causes you to think about things that other people say, arguments presented, it, 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 whether it changes your mind, it sharpens your thinking, it refines your thinking, and that's part of seminary education. I would say 50% of a seminary education takes place outside of the classroom. And I've just been amazed the last 20 years. The first question I get from people is, how can I get my seminary training online? If you were going to law school, you wouldn't ask that. Who wants a lawyer who went to law school online? Uh, who wants a doctor, a surgeon? who went to law school, I mean, went to medical school online. But, oh, it's okay if you're a doctor of the soul, if you are a pastor. That was what they used to, the term they used to use for pastors. But you want to do it online. Now, there are some things you certainly can get online, and that can help with costs and moving and things like that. But it, 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 you miss out, you're shortchanged in your education if you don't have that personal interaction with the professor and with other students outside the classroom. Okay, back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 
shifts away from the introductory 12, first 12 verses that raises a number of the issues that are going to be developed inside the epistle itself. And then <clears throat> that's why we have a therefore, and we begin to see commands, imperatives that come along, because the focal point of Peter, uh, Peter's epistle is to uh, exhort, challenge people on how they are to live, how they are to be transformed. For example, when we read through verses 13 through 17, often we miss the point. It looks like there's a command to gird up the loins of your mind when that's actually a participle. The command is to rest your hope fully upon the grace of God, and you do that. You realize and understand the uh, grace of God in your life by girding up. It's a participle of means. By girding up the loins of your mind, that means removing the distractions in your life, making the study of God's Word and the application of it a priority in your life, getting rid of the things that are good and fun and enjoyable activities that many of your friends participate in, but they do not accrue eternal value. So we have to gird up the loins, which was just a term for focusing your thinking, getting rid of distractions, and making the Word of God the highest priority in your life. And if you do that, that's the way in which you can learn grace and rest your hope, a key word in First Peter, uh, <clears throat> focusing in the, on the ultimate realization of that at the judgment seat of Christ. That is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ for the believer in the church age. That's the rapture followed by the judgment seat of Christ. And then in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts is in your ignorance. Same terminology that we have in, Revel in Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice, it's mind, mind, it's thinking. It is not emotion, it's not subjectivity, it's not how you feel about God. It is what the Word of God says. Uh, <clears throat> then in verse 15, we have our second command. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That is a second. And that word conduct, as we're going to see, is a critical term for uh, Peter. In First Peter, it is transformed conduct. Now, it's not an externalism. It's not legalism. But that transformed conduct comes from what? changing your mind, changing your thinking. Romans 12, 2, uh, transforming your thinking leads to a transformed life, transformed on the outside. Believers are going to talk different. They're going to act different. They're going to be involved in different things than the world around them. Now, back in the 60s and the 50s, you might not have realized that because we lived in a culture that was still uh, predominantly influenced by uh, Christianity, by Protestant uh, Christianity. But we live in a world now that's vastly different. And it's hard, especially if you have children, to communicate this to your children because it's going to make them different. And adolescents especially don't like to be different. They like to be governed by the values of their peers. And all of us, whether you're 
30 years old, 50 years old, 70 years old, you we all had to deal with peer pressure to one level, degree or another. And uh, that's where you begin to form character. That's where you begin to develop those those values and embed them in the life of, of, of adolescence. So that's very important as parents to be involved in the training of children and how they think. You don't wait till they're 12 or 13. If you wait till they're 12 or 13, then it's way too late. You start building those values into them when they're one, when they're 18 months, when they're uh, 24 months. And then when you get to 13 years, then you've laid a foundation already. Now, the value for the believer is he's to be holy. That means to be set apart to the service of God. He's going to live a life different. That doesn't mean legalism, but it does mean that he thinks differently, therefore he lives differently. In verse 17, we <clears throat> we studied this. If you call on the Father, and you do, who, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. The hope that is mentioned back here in verse 13 is a confident expectation of a future reality. That future reality appears at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 13. It's developed in verse 17 that we are to conduct ourselves in fear because we are going to be judged according to our work. This is not for our eternal destiny, lake of fire or heaven. It is for rewards. Evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ determines position, privilege, and responsibility during the uh, kingdom and on into eternity. Then we saw that in verse 18, the doctrine of redemption was brought in, which we studied the last uh, three classes, and it started with a causal participle, a perfect tense participle, because what Peter is saying is you've already come to learn this, and it's what's called an intensive perfect, meaning it's focusing on the present reality of a completed past action. You were taught about the redemption of Christ in the past, and you know it. He uses the word oida, emphasizing the present knowledge, not gnosko, indicating the process. And he is saying, you have come to know this. This is now embedded in your soul, and you've understood the nature of your redemption. By focusing on what Christ did on the cross, understanding the, the, the breadth of it, thinking about it, we realize that just getting saved is no superficial or simple thing. And the more we understand it, the more we realize that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to live as members in the family of God. We are His, and we should live that way. So that reads, because you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your, King James said, empty manner of life, New King James translates it aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. That's the religion of the Pharisees. Whenever you see that, remember he's writing to a uh, Jewish community that's become believers in Jesus as Messiah in uh, the mi uh, middle northern part of what is now Turkey. And he's writing to them. So for them, the tradition of the fathers was the oral law, the halakha, that was the uh, tradition of interpretation of the law that really developed 
in the post-exilic period. So he's, uh, he's, again, he's talking about conduct, and that's the same word. And here on this slide, we see he called you as holy, you be holy in your conduct. Anastrophe, that's the same word that's used down here in verse 17. Um, verse 17, to conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear. And then the noun is, uh, is used down here in, in verse 18. So he's really focusing on that word for conduct, for lifestyle, how we live. And that's the bottom line is, is how we live. And he repeats it several times uh, in First Peter, First Peter 2.12. We're to conduct our lives honorably. And he's writing a, a Jewish background believer. So he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. We're living in the, in the cosmic system. So among the pagans around us, we are to live our lives as exceptional examples of virtue and integrity and honor. Uh, wives are exhorted in terms of their conduct in 1 Peter 3.1 and 1 Peter 3.2. 1 Peter 3.16, we're to have a good conscience that when they defame you, that is, when unbelievers... Uh, distort who we are, and they ridicule us, and they call us evildoers, and that's coming. This happened in the ancient world. It's going to happen now that when Christians are in the minority and our life challenges people, then they will say that we're really evildoers. In the ancient world, Jews and Christians in the Roman Empire were considered atheists, and and because of that, they were persecuted. They were atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods and goddesses in the Roman Empire. The idea that they believed in one and only one god was foreign to the pagan mindset. And so they were called atheists. They weren't atheists at all. But this is the kind of thing we're going to run into. I read today that uh, there's a, a piece of legislation that's going to go before the California uh, California legislature to penalize anyone who does not believe in anthropogenic or man-made global warming. These kinds of things may not make it very far. They may get voted down, and they usually do. But this push, it continues. It, year after year after year, sooner or later, it, it's going, going to get passed. And so if you, most Bible-believing Christians, don't give a whole lot of uh, credence to the concept of anthropogenic global warming, especially if they've studied the topic very much. And so they will be defamed as evildoers. You hate the planet. You want to destroy the planet. You want to abuse the planet. You hate all of mankind because you don't want to do what is necessary. My gosh, don't you know that the oceans are rising over the, in fact, uh, not too many years ago, in 2009, there was a report that that the ocean levels around uh, around uh, uh, New York City had risen some uh, 10 or 12 millimeters in just a, a few years. Now that's not a whole lot, but they project into the future that this is going to continue year after year, and so in another hundred years, we're all going to be waiting around. Uh, but in the last six years, they discovered that now 
uh, it's not only re reversed itself, but it's down about three milliliters from what it was in 2009. See, these cycles uh, take place. Same thing in uh, in Washington, D.C. There, It wasn't as... Um, as high as it was in New York, but there's a, a reversal. So, so we're, we're looking at a microscopic amount of data uh, when we look at recorded meteorological data. And when we uh, go back and try to extrapolate forward from this minutia of information, uh, we run into a lot of problems, especially when political uh, presuppositions enter into the uh, logarithms and the codes and the models that are being structured in order to try to prove their presuppositions. So uh, a lot of it is driven by politics and philosophy and not by just raw science. So what we've seen in these previous verses is that we are to live in hope. Hope is to characterize the believer's life. It's a future expectation. It's related to that future a revelation or disclosure of the grace of God in Christ when he appears at the rapture. We're to live today in terms of being holy. Uh, the first mandate is related to the problem-solving device that I describe as a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're living today in light of tomorrow. We're to be holy. That is, we are to be separated unto God. This relates to Confession, because that's the only way we can recover from sin. It relates to grace orientation. We have to learn and develop our understanding of grace and relying upon God's grace. That means we don't tell God that we're sorry for our sins. Confession doesn't mean to say you're sorry for your sin. It means to admit or acknowledge your sin. When you go to court, and that's the concept, when you go to court, and you have been given a ticket for doing 50 miles an hour in a school zone of 20 miles an hour, the judge isn't going to care how sorry you are. You can tell them you're sorry day in and day out, and they don't care. The issue is, did you do it or not? If you did it, then you pay the fine, or you go to jail, or, whatever the, or you give up your license, or whatever the penalty is. So that's grace orientation. We go to God and we just confess sin and he forgives us and we orient to grace that our sins may not seem so egregious as other people's sins. Read an interesting analysis day before yesterday, a devastating critique, and I've read bits and pieces of this over the years, a devastating critique of the Trinity Broadcast Net Network. That's probably the one channel on your television most of you never watch. That's the channel that was founded by Paul and Jan Crouch. And Paul Crouch died about three years ago. His wife died of a massive stroke two days ago. I met them uh, some 20, 28 years ago. Uh, Hal Lindsey was in town, and they were doing a big TBN thing out at Lakewood, and so that was long before Joel Osteen took over. And Tommy Ice and I came down, and and uh, we actually put together a meeting uh, <clears throat> between uh, Pastor Theme and Hal Lindsey. We all went out to lunch and had a tremendous time, but that night we went out <clears throat> and we went to Lakewood. What a change of environment. God has a sense of humor. 
And we went out there, and then afterwards we left, and Hal Lindsey was riding with Tommy, and I was uh, by myself, and we were supposed to meet at Abinigan's, I believe, at the Galleria. I knew how to get there. Apparently, whoever was driving, Paul and Jan Crouch, knew how to get there. And Gavin McLeod, the captain, Captain Stewing from the Love Boat, was there with his wife. And I showed up at Benigan's at the same time they did. And Tommy doesn't know Houston, so Tommy got lost. And Tommy and Hal, will, I will never forgive. Because they left me stranded with them for an hour plus before they finally showed up. And uh, Paul, I mean... Um, What's his name? Gavin McLeod was an absolute gentleman, very friendly. He sat next to me and engaged me in conversation. Uh, we had a tremendous time. But the other uh, two, Paul and Jan Crouch and their professor, I, I was invisible, totally invisible. They didn't know me. I wasn't a big name. It, it didn't matter. Anyway, this you might be able to Google something and find out. But, but the heresy, the apostasy that has been promoted by TBN, is is beyond measure. They have been responsible for uh, teaching more false doctrine. In fact, Hal Lindsey said of Jan Crouch at about that time, he said, he told her to her face, I was there. He said, Jan, there never was a heresy that you didn't fall in love with. So, um, you know, we have to uh, recognize that some people's sins may appear to us to be much more egregious than ours. But when you stack any of our sins up against the righteousness of God, we all fall miserably short. From God's perspective, the difference between your sins and Adolf Hitler's sins may amount to a grain of sand. From your perspective, you think there's you know, hundreds of miles of difference between the two. But sin, whether it's eating a piece of fruit or committing the genocide of six million people is the same in terms of its relative relativity to the righteousness of God. So often we get caught up with that, and we think, oh, that person is so evil. And in our self-righteousness, we forget that our sin is just as obnoxious to God as somebody else's sins, no matter how much the difference is. Now, practically, in terms of day-to-day life, the sins of an Adolf Hitler are much, much worse than our sins, and we need to recognize that. But we're not talking about practical outworking in time. We're talking about how it relates to the righteousness of God. And so that's grace orientation. It means we don't judge other people on the basis of our human standards, because as, uh, as it's been said, but for the grace of God, there go you and I. Uh, our sins are just as egregious, even if they are more acceptable in our own eyes. Doctrinal orientation means that we orient our thinking to the Word of God, and we have to internalize it. Study it, study it, study it, read it every day, and that becomes a focal point. Third thing we learned is that we're to live our life based on the fear of God. Uh, which is the beginning of wisdom. That's doctrinal orientation and its personal love for God as we grow and mature. And, and the bottom line is we do this because we know what it costs to purchase our freedom, our freedom at the cross. Now, if you're using a New American Standard Bible and you come down to the end of verse 19... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> there's a period. That's one of the um, idiosyncrasies about the King James Bible. They tried to make sentences and make every verse a standalone sentence if they could, and sometimes they couldn't do that, so they expanded it to maybe two or three verses. But actually, in the Greek text, it continues. The thought of verse 20 is a development of what is in 17, 18, and 19. And it develops our understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, focusing on the person of Christ. In the New New King James Version, it begins as an autonomous sentence. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times through you, for you, who through him believe. Notice, it just runs on into another uh, relative clause in verse 21. Actually, the first word in verse 20 in the Greek is this word, prognosco, but it's a perfect participle. It is a perfect, I have middle up there, but it could be middle or passive, either one. It probably has a passive sense, but it should be, it's perfect, which means uh, it's completed action. Indeed, having been foreordained, it, it was something that was completed in eternity past, this act of being foreordained, but foreordained is a uh, is an, is not the best translation. Now, that's the New King James translation. If you look at some other translations, they will uh, more accurately translate it, having been foreknown, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, we're not going to get much further in our understanding of this text than that, but I want you to wanted to point out that this initial participle here just continues... Uh, our understanding of the work of the person of Christ, whereas uh, seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen focused on his uh, his work, and so here we understand his purpose. I mean, his person, which relates to his purpose, as we'll see, in entering into the world. That this, he didn't die by accident, but <clears throat> it was part of God's plan. But the word foreordained, which implies a plan, isn't. In the original, the word foreknow is what the original means, but again, that doesn't relate to a plan either. So we have to look at this because this is one of those words that is at the very uh, heart of the argument between those who believe in a volitional theology and those who believe in a non-volitional theology that is Calvinism. And actually, Arminianism is a different view. The view that I think is the biblical view uh, distinguishes between the systems of Arminianism and Calvinism. The Arminian position historically came out of the theology of a man named James Arminius, who was a originally a strong five-point superlapsarian Calvinist. He taught in a seminary in in Holland, and as he taught the scripture, he came to other convictions, and he was basically brought up on heresy trials, and that trial took place in the town of Dort in um, 1617, 
And the, and the conclusion or the, the indictment was that he taught five things. Those became known as the, uh, <clears throat> the remonstrance, uh, the position of Arminius. And the Calvinists condemned him on all five points as being heretical, and they offered their alternative. So you started with a position far to the left, and they countered it by going far to the right, neither of which was biblical. And <clears throat> Arminius, who had died by that, that time, uh, was found as uh, teaching a heretical position. Uh, the biblical position is somewhere in between. The problem is that historically you have uh, a major error. We still have it today. Many people commit this error, and that is instead of starting from the text and developing your theology and doctrine from the text, they com they're committed to a theological system ahead of time, and then they read that into the text, or they come to some conclusions uh, this is much more common. They come to some conclusions from the text, and then they start uh, with those conclusions, and they start extrapolating from those conclusions what they think are equally valid conclusions. And they may not be because their syllogisms are faulty at some point or another, and the result is that they get off into something that logically hangs together, but it doesn't hang together biblically because some of their... Some of their premises are no longer biblical. So we have to look at this and we have to understand the words. The words are, are very, uh, <clears throat> very important. This word prognosco is found, the verb is found five times in the New Testament. This is the first point, is just understanding the usage here. This isn't one of those words like holy or a word like love. Uh, that's used dozens or hundreds of times in the Scripture. So it's a very simple word to perform a word study on. It is a verb that is found five times in the Scripture, and the noun is found two times in the Scripture. The verb is found once here in 1 Peter. The noun is found back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So we studied this doctrine uh, at the beginning of our study. Here's a list of those verses. Acts 26.5, Romans 8.29, we studied this when we studied Romans, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1.20, our text, and 2 Peter 3.17. And Acts 26.5 is translated with the meaning of knowing something ahead of time. We'll look at this in more detail. They knew me from the first, Paul says, as he's giving his defense before Agrippa. They knew me beforehand. That's the idea of the word. It means prognosco. Gnosco means to know. The P-R-O means to know beforehand. And, and what happens, as we'll see, is Calvinists come along and say it means to select or to choose. Um, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, these are the key, uh, key passages. Second uh, Peter 3.17, it's translated know beforehand. This is the fundamental meaning of the word, as we'll see. The noun form is used in Acts 2.23, which really picks up more of the sense and the doctrine that we have here in, in <clears throat> 1 Peter 1.20, being delivered to the determined purpose or the determined will and the prior knowledge of God, 
you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. It's the idea that God knew beforehand. And we have to be careful with that, but that's what the text says, and that's the meaning of the word. It has that same meaning that elect is a result of a prior action, and that is the previous or prior knowledge of God the Father. And we'll look at that, review that again briefly. So when we look at these verses, what this tells us is that that <clears throat> there is uh, a misunderstanding and a sense in which a theological position is read into the meaning of this words. Now this next slide is misnumbered. This should be number two. This should be number two. And this is a quote that I have. I have several quotes here because it's important for us to understand a little bit about the context the theological context of this battle with Calvinism. It's been amazing over the last, I would say, 25 to 30 years that that Calvinism and, and uh, five-point Calvinism has really grown in popularity. And, in fact, there's a new form of Calvinism that I'm not going to get sidetracked on that, but it's, uh, it's very popular with younger people. I think one of the reasons... Uh, reasons for that, and several years ago, Charlie and two or three others of us were talking about this, is that as our culture descends more and more into chaos and and uncertainty, that people are searching for a system that dots every I and crosses every T. And Calvinism, because it's been around for uh, 400 years and has been developed into a very tight-knit system, seems to answer that for them. It gives them uh, a theological position. They have a historical precedence of 400 years, and so they are attracted to that. But it doesn't give them a system that is biblical. It has a lot of proof texts along with it, but it isn't biblical when you start to analyze, analyze the data. Uh, so I want to look at a few quotes that we have here. Now, this first quote comes from uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Now, Burkhoff is a Reformed theologian. When I started Dallas Seminary in 1976, this was our primary textbook. We also read from, from uh, Chafer, but we read from Burkhoff as well. Burkhoff is very good in some areas, not quite so good in some other areas. But in the, in the section where he is dealing with the uh, word meanings uh, related to prognosco, he goes back to the meaning of the Hebrew term. Now, the Hebrew word for knowledge is the word yada. The transliteration is found in the first line of the quote. And this is a very common line of argument. If you're ever talking with a Calvinist, He's going to take you to the early chapters of Genesis, and when it talks about Adam knowing Eve, he's going to say, see, that kind of knowledge is an intimate knowledge related to selection, choosing whom you're going to love, okay? And, and there's an element of truth in that, but like a lot of words, you... you they may be used in a minority of, of uh, circumstances 
with that sort of a nuance, but you can't automatically extrapolate that to every uses usage. So this is the argument you'll find from a Cal, from a five point Calvinist. The Hebrew word yada and the Greek word, see that's where we are, we're talking about the Greek words, gnoskein, that's the root word, prognoskein, and prognosis. Prognosis is the noun form that we had back in first Peter one two. The word yada may simply mean to know or to take cognizance of someone or something. In other words, just to be aware of something. But it may also be used in the more pregnant sense of taking knowledge of one with loving care or, quote, making one the object of loving care or elective love. Now, see, what he's done here is he said this is what the word means. And so he what, what has happened uh, is he's drawn a certain conclusion uh, absent the evidence. He's asserted the meaning without demonstrating the meaning. And this is a problem we have a lot of times. You hear politicians do this all the time. They just assert things as fact. Listen to t- Donald Trump. Listen to Hillary Clinton. They assert all kinds of things as, tr- as fact without one bit of evidence. In fact, all the evidence is against them. They're lying. They're deceiving. They're just distorting the truth. And, and those are just two examples. There are many, many more, as I'm sure you're aware. So he's just making this assertion. What we have to do as a student of the Bible is to evaluate every usage and see if this conclusion stands. <clears throat> I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you my, my conclusions and the conclusions of, of some others. He says, in this sense, it serves the idea of election. In other words, what he's done is he's made this leap that the word no really means to select something to be so, uh, to be the object of your choice. It, knowing means selection or election. There's some 450 uses, something like that, of, um, of yada in the Old Testament, and maybe a hundred of them imply the concept of knowledge. Okay, so it is a minor meaning, but he's extrapolating the minor meaning to uh, er- every use. He says, in this sense, it serves the idea of election. He quotes from Genesis 18.19, Amos 3.2, Hosea 13.5, all of which are dubious. In fact, in, in the, <clears throat> as you shift from the earlier, uh, earlier editions of, of Hebrew grammars, that were, uh, I mean, Hebrew lexica that were available in the early 1900s to the uh, publication of the Brown Driver Briggs uh, Hebrew lexicon in 1917. Uh, Brown Driver Briggs left these examples out. It was an English translation that was based on the older German uh, German translate German lexica of Gesenius. So it's important. I tell these pastors, you got to get all these lexica and you got to read them through chronologically and figure out how things develop because these word meanings are not templates that you can just put in every context. Um, He concludes, the meaning of the words prognoskein and prognosis in the New Testament is not determined by their usage in the classics. And that's, that's a true statement. But usually what you have, but the classics usually refers to 6th century B.C. But by the, by the um, 
late 20th century, we had access to lexica like Moulton and Milligan, which classifies all the meanings of the of the papyrus and which covered the New Testament period and afterward. Classics is really talking about 600 years before uh, before Christ, and this is a mistake some people have made by going back to usage 600 years earlier to define the meanings of the New Testament. I would, you know, none of us would want to go to Shakespeare to define current usage and current meaning based on how Shakespeare or the Tyndale Bible uh, used the English word. That is roughly comparable to what happens when you go to Attic Greek or uh, Boeotian Greek or some of the early Greek dialects of the 6th or 7th century to document Koine Greek meanings. The language shifted a lot. Uh, he, he says, uh, so, so this sentence sounds meaningful, but it's not. He says, they do not denote simple intellectual foresight or prescience. Uh, actually, the lexica di- contra- di- uh, disagree with that. He says, the mere taking knowledge of something beforehand, but rather it means a selective knowledge which regards one with favor and makes one an object of love and thus approaches the idea of foreordination. Um, so that's his, that's his view. Now, here's a guy, Tom Schreiner. He's a, a professor, quite brilliant. I've heard him speak a few times. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament at um, Southern Seminary, a Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he basically says that the meaning is what I've underlined uh, in which he sets his affection on those whom he has chosen. See, he uses some of these same proof texts, but when you look at those proof texts, that's not what they're talking about. Um, uh, Burkhoff goes on and says, even Arminians feel constrained to give the words a more determinative meaning, which is debatable. Uh, to foreknow one with absolute assurance in a certain state of condition. So anyway, I just want to point these these things out. This is what people run across. So let's look at what some of the lexica say. This is the second point, the lexica data, lexical data. The Liddell Scott Jones, it was originally Liddell Scott or Little Scott, Greek-English lexicon covers all the usage of Greek words from classical Greek from the time of... Uh, the uh, pre-Socratics all the way up through the New Testament and some of the uh, other Koine data. Uh, He says, um, first of all, it means to know, to perceive, to learn, or to understand beforehand. Beforehand modifies those other words. To know beforehand, perceive beforehand, learn, or understand, all modified by beforehand. To prognosticate for no, learn things in advance. Nothing there implies the meaning of selection or election. And, and in the Liddell Scott Jones, it includes all of the uses of Greek words in the Koine period in the New Testament and gives New Testament examples. So they're not ignoring the New Testament data. And it says to judge beforehand, to evaluate something ahead of time. In uh, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, it says to know beforehand or in advance to have foreknowledge of something. And then see that third meaning, to choose beforehand. But see, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich has a tendency of reading a certain theological position into, into the text, and that's exactly what they've done there. 
Um, one of the things I've taught students that I was taught when I was in seminary is that somebody who's got a, 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 a really worthwhile master's of theology from Dallas Seminary, as we were taught, should be able to do their own raw lexical work and critique what's in the lexica. We were taught that we can write exegetical papers that are superior to what you find in the commentaries by the time we finish. That's why the THM at Dallas Seminary up through the 70s and into the early part of the 80s was considered by many accrediting committees, I've been told by people who who are in the know and involved in this, was more valuable than a PhD from other seminaries. Isn't that interesting? We were taught to do really good core work from the beginning. Okay, Moulton and Milligan, the lexica related to uh, the use in the papyri means to know, uh, to foreknow, to know previously, and it notes that uh, uh, F.J.A. Hort, who is a late 19th century scholar, Greek scholar, thinks that First Peter 1.20 means to designate before, okay? Uh, Zodiades. Uh, Spiros, I think it's pronounced Zodiades, it's either Zodiades or Zodiades, Zodiades, I think. Says it means uh, he's got a little uh, English Greek word study Bible. And he's Greek, native Greek speaker. Um, he says it means to perceive or recognize beforehand, to know previously, to take into account or specially consider beforehand, to grant prior acknowledgement or recognition to someone to foreknow. See, it's used of mere prescience. See, all these Calvinists say it never means prescience. And here's a Greek scholar, it means prescience. Okay, so that gives you the lexical data. So the reason for that is when I come along and say this doesn't mean to choose something ahead of time, to select something, to uh, select the object of your love, that this is reading a theological position into, uh, into the data. So the conclusion to the lexical data is that the lexicons can provide no example outside of the Bible where prognosco means anything other than prescience, to know that which is to know something ahead of time or beforehand. And BDAG makes the same mistake with regard to glossa. Glossa is the word for tongues. Glossa is listed as having three meanings in BDAG. Meaning number one is... Um, is the physical organ that is inside your mouth, your physical tongue. The second meaning is a foreign language or any language. The third meaning is ecstatic utterance. But the only verses, the only data that they give for ecstatic utterance are Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians uh, 13 and 14. But those are the passages at question. They can't marshal any evidence where the word was ever used with this ecstatic utterance meaning, even in the mystery religions. And I remember doing a tremendous amount of research on this back in the early 80s and going through every use of glossa I could find in uh, non-biblical data, and it never referred uh, to ecstatic utterance at all. And I wanted it to, but you couldn't substantiate it. So, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says that the corresponding noun, prognosis, is attested as a medical technical term. We use it that way today. You go to the doctor and you want to get a prognosis. What's going to happen? It uh, says that um, 
the NID NTT says it denotes the foreknowledge which makes it possible to predict the future. So, this is important to understand. There's a contrast uh, in this sense before knowing something uh, in the present, knowing something in the past. This is seen in the usage in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, how many times did I say this word was used? The verb's used five times. One is the passage in question. Okay, outside of that, you've got four other passages. In two of those four passages, the word clearly means to know beforehand. So you have two passages where you could possibly conceive of it meaning something else. But it's doubtful. So what you have to do always when you look at evidence is go from the known to the unknown. Okay, you can't start with a vague passage. It could mean gray, it could mean white, it could mean black. There are a lot of times when you could make a word mean something and the sentence would still make sense. But you have to have evidence. There has to be data. You can't just jump to a conclusion because that's what you want or that's what you would like. That's what fits your theological uh, presupposition. So you have all the uses outside the Bible, Bible, including Koine Greek at the time of the Bible. It's never used that way. It's never used uh, in any clear passage to mean to, to determine something. It's never used that way. You only have two verses where people want it to mean that way but you don't have any evidence outside of those two verses where it means where it can mean that you've got to support it with data you know go go watch 3 years worth of csis and you'll understand the importance of evidence and and data you just can't make it mean what you want it to mean because that's what you want that's what you like okay let's look at a couple of these passages We'll start with one tonight. Acts 2.23. Talking about him, talking about Christ being delivered by the determined purpose. That's the word boule, which simply means the will of God. This was his sovereign will. This was his plan to provide salvation for the human, human race. Uh, determined purpose adds a certain degree of, uh, of uh, almost uh, determinism. To the, to the meaning of the word boule. Mostly it's just translated will. Having been delivered by the will of God, will of God, and the foreknowledge of God. And these are not the same thing. These are two different things. The determined purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God, which is his, his knowledge beforehand. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So a couple of things we ought to note from this. First of all, God had a plan, and this word means will, purpose, intent, aim, and it's based on cognition, it's based on thought, it's based on deliberation and reflection. It's not something that just happened. So the will of God is part of his knowledge, is related to his, his omniscience. That's the second point. The plan is based on God's omniscience, that omniscience precedes a decision. Knowledge always precedes decision. 
that God, because he knows every detail that will take place and every detail that could take place, he uses that information to devise a perfect plan. He does, in Calvinism, God only knows what will happen because God first determined what would happen. He doesn't know all that could happen. So when Jesus makes statements like, um, if this had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Passages like that indicate that he knows what would have happened or could have happened under other circumstances. So omniscience implies that God knows all of the knowable, what could happen and what might have might have happened. Uh, and on the basis of knowing all information, God then devised a perfect plan. I'm speaking somewhat anthropomorph, uh, anthropopathically. Therefore, God's purpose, point number three, our third observation here is God's purpose combined with his knowledge of all future contingencies to devise a perfect plan of salvation which focused on the second person of the Trinity, sending the second person of the Trinity to the earth. So he, he sets this. Now, the other thing we should note is that we have the word foreknowledge here. It's not in a context related to individual justification or selection of somebody to be saved or not saved. It is knowing beforehand uh, what needed to be done in order to accomplish his plan of salvation. So this is not a word that implies election for eternal or selection for eternal uh, destiny. So what what uh, Peter is telling the Israelites is that even though God had a plan, uh, which included that Jesus would be crucified and killed on a cross, that uh, doesn't negate their individual choice and their individual uh, responsibility. You, it was delivered by the will of God and his uh, uh, previous knowledge of previous event, of events previously, and he says, you've taken, you have taken. So it doesn't absolve them of their personal responsibility. In other words, God's foreknowledge and his will does not override the volition of human beings. They still had to make a decision. They still had to make a choice. His crucifixion was not a matter of omnipotent determinism, but it was affected and and organized and brought about in accordance with God's uh, foreknowledge. We can't at all in, uh, read into this the meaning of intimate, loving relationship. Think about that. And uh, him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and the intimate, loving relationship of God. That doesn't make sense. But that is, if you follow their methodology and their reasoning, that is where you are bound to go. When we look at the next verse I have on the screen, the, first, the second verse of First Peter that we studied, that they were elect, and we studied that word, and it has the idea of being choice. Their choice because they possess righteousness. Choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is sometimes... Uh, uh, distorted, but elect comes subsequent to foreknowledge. We see that 
that the according to is something that precedes the action. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, talking about the Antichrist, the Antichrist who's coming is according to the working of Satan. What comes first, the working of Satan or the coming? The working of Satan, what's in the prepositional clause. So the, what's in the prepositional clause is what comes first, the foreknowledge of God. Subsequent to that, the uh, act or the the the, um, the choice. It's a character quality of these individuals. Their choice, according to something that preexisted, their choiceness, the foreknowledge of God. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll come back and look at Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine, which is another critical verse. Just as a reminder, there we'll come to that and some other passages next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that uh, your word is true, uh, your word is absolute, and that if we take the time to really study, to take, take the time to think through uh, consistently what you have said, it hangs together, it makes sense. And Father, we're thankful that you have provided these Uh, clear statements that we can come to understand the truth of your plan and that this plan focused on a Savior who would redeem us, who could redeem us, so that it's not based on who we are, what we do, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.